Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this week, we're talking about something very near and dear to my heart, and I think your heart as well. Uh, we're talking about the whys and hows of sci-fi that works for us, and why sci-fi, why certain types of sci-fi does not. It leaves us cold as the cold, dead vacuum of space. Whereas some sci-fi leaves us hot as the fusion reactor, or uh, the fusion of the sun, I guess. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't write that part down. So Both uh, are good. Fusion reactor or the fusion reaction of the sun. Both totally apt. Yeah, they work. So I'm, I'm fine with that Austin metaphor. Uh, <laughs> part of this is because I uh, cannot stop playing Into the Breach. And I know you cannot stop playing The Division. <laughs> and I think they're for very, uh, very different reasons. So uh, uh, also, because you've had a, a, a game that has left you cold. Like lifeless space as well. So there's a, there's a lot to this topic, really. So uh, do you want to talk about the game that has left you a bit cold, or the one that has left you very hot? Uh, well, it's ironic because uh, <laughs> the division also leaves me a little bit cold on one level, and also it's a very wintry, cold-looking game. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, like I think, sort of the near future apocalypse. Uh, story that it's telling uh works for me on some level it's relatable it even if it mishandles those themes it at least like resonates with things that i think about and worry about in my day-to-day you know like yeah. uh various forms of like official fascism uh you know what like uh you know the sleeping demons uh you know in american society at least the division is sort of thinking about those things, even if I think it's thinking about them in some dumb ways and is coming down to some really wrong answers. I can still <laughs> kind of invent. It's still something I can sit there and look at, and I'm like, oh, this is an interesting canvas that I can react to. Um, and so it's ironic that like I've been really getting into that while completely bouncing off of uh, a game that I kind of hoped I would love, which was Surviving Mars. Mm. And Surviving Mars was kind of a what's not to like uh, <laughs> idea for me. It was this idea that basically it's a city builder set on Mars with a real emphasis on at least the elevator pitch was a real emphasis on like the practicalities of like actually uh, you know surviving on Mars. That's that's in the name, right? Like the this isn't Martian colony. This is like how do like the the question being asked is like can we survive Mars? And the answer the game comes to immediately is like oh hell yeah we can. Like this shit is easy. Uh, like basically you just like you need water on Mars. Fucking just plonk the water building down and pull that sweet, sweet groundwater straight out of Mars. All that, uh, all that ice. Yeah. Red ice. Yeah, exactly. It's probably good to drink. Uh, it'll be, that shit will be delicious. Um, you need oxygen. Just put, put down the oxygen machine. That'll be great. And uh, just let them run. And then voila, you've got everything you need to support human life. And I think that one's failing for me because... Even though there's like a fair bit of management you can do, there's there's not much. <laughs> there, there's two there's two ways in which it is failing for me. One is that it makes space feel way too trivial an obstacle. Like hmm. this thing could basically be anywhere on Earth, right? This city builder could be like, uh, it could it could be any any setting, any kind of like if if the game was about setting up like remote like. 
Amazonian rainforest logging camps. It would be the same game if it was about creating like subdivisions in the heart of, uh, you know, southwestern American deserts. It's still functionally the same game. Like it, that, that's how remote this Mars feels. But the other element to this is, it's not as like surviving Mars doesn't seem to be in dialogue with anything about the world. It doesn't like it. It's interested in space travel, but as this like completely bland and empty vessel that's like devoid of any politics or context. It's just huh. like you go off into space. And you just mine the shit out of it, dude. Like just, <laughs> just, just go ham on that space water and that space metal, and just do whatever you need. Just and be a colonizer. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and it actually is really uncomfortable because, like, it does feel like you are literally strip mining the planet uh, at points in this game. But yeah, so like, it just you are explicitly doing some of that, like. There's no good form of strip mining on Earth. Like, it usually looks pretty ugly. It literally scars the landscape. Uh, Shout-outs to a really good uh, art photography book uh, that people should look up called Black Landscapes, huh. uh, which is um, sort of a collection of photography from industrial hellscapes, is the way I'd put it. Oh, shit. Um, like, it's not exactly like concealed uh landscapes but it's the stuff like you know it's like mining mining camps in montana or something uh-huh. or like mountaintop removal operations or super fun sites that have been abandoned it's aerial photography of these places like the earth has been literally reshaped and scarred by like God. industrial activity this that game looks amazing. like that oh okay gotcha gotcha yeah, yeah. It, like there's there's no thought or no care for what life would actually be disrupted by this sort of thing. Even if it's a lifeless place, like it's still. Yeah, I I, I think I yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the book is um, Black Maps: American Landscape and the Apocalyptic Sublime by wow. David Meisel. Black um, Maps. I'm writing this down. Yeah, I thought it was Black Landscapes, but it's Black Maps. The American Wasteland. That's the American Landscape. And the apocalyptic sublime. Wow, is a hell of a fucking title. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so like that's what this that, like that's what Mars starts to look like after you've been on it for five minutes in this game. But the game never comments on it. It's just like keep building out, keep expanding, keep widening your footprint on this planet. But we have nothing to say about that. It's not even it's raising uncomfortable questions and leaving them unanswered. The yeah. questions never seem to occur in the game itself. That's, yeah. The best sci-fi, uh, well, I don't want to be too general here because I like a lot of sci-fi that's absolute trash as well. <clears throat> Dark matter. Uh, but I also... I wasn't going to say it, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> but I, 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 like, I like most types of sci-fi, of course. Uh, but for me, uh, a lot of the best sci-fi does care deeply about the human element and the human element uh that that is disrupted by technology and the human element that is complicated by technology and the political because there's nothing human without politics which as much as that sucks and we might hate it we might as well embrace the truth and understand it and attempt to do better Uh, of course i say this as someone who is like knee deep in the expanse books right now uh which are really good 
And I do think uh, the show, I don't, I don't know what I think is better, actually, to be honest with you. I love the books, uh, but the characters as they are on the show are, are maybe better drawn than they are in the books, which is very weird and very odd because uh, it usually goes the opposite. There are some really significant differences. Uh, but anyway, like, it seems to me that because Surviving Mars feels like it's trying to be too clean and too apolitical, it just is boring and bland, as opposed to uh, The Division, which has horrible politics, but maybe you're just having enough fun with the aesthetics anyway that it's it's doing something for you. Yeah, but, you know, hell, even maybe horrible politics are better than no politics in some ways. Because <laughs> sure. like, I, I think the argument then is, like, is anything truly apolitical or is apoliticism just the most insidious form of politics, right? Like, sure. is the apolitical agnostic angle of the surviving Mars poisonous because it is entirely political, but it's denying that it has anything to say. It's basically saying, like, go eat, drink, be merry across the stars, change nothing, reform nothing, carry no lessons with you, and draw no from draw none from this experience. Just consume. Isn't this fun? I have no message. Yeah. Like, that's deeply fucked up. Whereas the division wears its ugly fucking politics, you know, on the front of its Kevlar. Uh, basically, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you know, like literally, yeah, it's awful and it's atrocious. Shoot that Rikers prisoner. Oh, it's these Rikers gangs. We got to stop them. Uh, that God. is terrible. But at least that gives me, at least I can sort of dissect that for myself and like engage with it as a, what does the existence of this thing as a massively popular work of AAA entertainment say? Yeah. It's it's better to know. It's better to know where it really stands, where things really stand, at least most of the time, I suppose. Yeah, and and that seems like a very also 2018 thing. Like it feels like we can never pretend anymore that anything is apolitical. Um, you know, not that we ever could, if you were paying any attention, of course, at, at any point in history, at any point in the human experience. But it does feel like uh, you just kind of. Uh, are really, really a piece of shit if you ignore that at this point. Like, it's it's even more uh, sort of telling. So, uh, <laughs> I've been playing, um, you might say, a tremendous amount of Into the Breach lately, which is uh, a sci-fi game that has... Uh, <sighs> the politics of Into the Breach are interesting, I suppose you could say, uh, because it's it's a game about making... Uh, the best possible choices in a horrible situation where failure is what happens 99% of the time, of course. Even if you succeed, uh, there's going to be some element of failure and there's going to be some element of death and there's going to be some element of who gets to live and who doesn't get to live uh, that is sort of laced within the fiction, which is interesting and good. Um, I've always thought uh, the best, not the best, so some of the best sci-fi writing in games goes around that sort of idea of doing the best you can in impossible situations. Uh, it's interesting. It's inherently interesting. It's something that sort of the Mass Effect games wanted to do at their best moments, uh, like some of mm -hmm. these sort of, uh, the, the not escort missions, the the sort of personal missions you could go on into, which is sort of, you know, hailed, yeah. I think, Loyalty rightfully. missions, is that what they were? The what, sorry? Loyalty missions? Yes, yes, yes. Some of those yeah. began to get a tiny bit at that, but of course, uh, that game was very much about having, like, a, you know, shuffling you towards a specific ending. Um, <clears throat> but in Into the Breach, uh, in case... 
I doubt we have listeners who aren't playing this game, but just in case we in case we do, this just feels like a very idle weekend game. Uh, it's a tactical game uh, by the folks who by subset who made, of course, FTL, uh, and you play as three little mechs on a grid, on a cool little pixel art grid, and uh, you have to uh, make tactical decisions uh, turn by turn and kill a whole bunch of bugs that are very Starship Troopersy. Uh, evil bugs they're called the vec and of course whenever you fail uh there is a permadeath element and you can pick one pilot to kind of go back in time and try again basically anytime you fail uh, the game you have to protect power grids and you have to protect uh buildings full of people and of course you're going to screw up a lot especially at the beginning i screwed up a whole lot i made no progress for like 30 hours and then finally sort of got a handle on the game and uh now i can't stop playing it and i enjoy it so much and i have dreams about it because i think about it so much which is you know this is that game for me right now the, po- the politics of the game are very interesting because it never sort of falters on the idea that you're fucking people over all the time there are many timelines, you know, it's, it, it goes with multiple timeline theory, which I like, I hate mm-hmm. time. This isn't a side. I'm sorry. But we're, since we're talking about sci-fi, I truly hate sci-fi that ignores the fact that multiple timelines would totally be the way time travel works. Like if you travel back in time, you're just creating another universe. You're just creating another branch. You're not going to kill your grandfather and create a paradox. If you kill your grandfather, you're not going to fucking disappear. That's stupid. Why would any, Why would that happen? That's just dumb. It doesn't work that way. You create another timeline where things happen differently and things would be the same wherever you left. God. Anyway. <clears throat> it goes with that. And it says, you know, humanity died in 7,000 timelines. Like everybody died. And that's your fault because <laughs> you were stupid and you made a bad decision. And I really like that. I really, really like that. I like putting the onus on the player. I like putting the stakes at that level. And I also like uh, the fact that the sort of um, corporate leaders, so there's sort of several islands uh, full of missions and you're going and trying to save all these people. I like that the corporate leaders of these islands, because of course it's it's cyberpunk, corporations own the islands, are, are saying they're yelling at you when you screw up. They're saying how many people died when you screwed up, especially the leader of the desert island, which is Jessica Kern, I think. She's like this stern old lady. She mm. looks like she could have been on the Golden Girls. She's awesome. She she's really my does. Character. Holy shit. <laughs> she's, she's got a real B. Arthur thing going on, and it's so good. Uh, and she just chastises you all the time whenever you screw up, and it's awesome, and it's good. And no, you shouldn't feel like the hero because you screwed up so many times. There's something really wonderful and and uh, feels realistic about that. And I say, you know, of course, feels realistic. It's a it's a you know cartoonish mech game, but it it feels true to what those stakes would actually feel like if you were in such a situation. Yeah, it's also striking to me how um, even like toward the bitter end, like because as you go to these islands, it is clear this these are the last bastions of humanity, yeah. like. Humanity is, you know, screwed the pooch basically and about to be extinct. <laughs> Even in that context, yes, it's for the for the purpose of creating like bonus mission goals. But even in the context of like this is our last throw of the dice, this is our last hope. You've got these guys being like, "Oh, make sure you don't damage, you know, the widget factory. You better protect that. It's, it's valuable." The old Earth nightclub, <laughs> right? That's one of them. <laughs> yeah. Right, and it's like, if we don't protect that, uh, then you've really screwed up. And it's like, mm. 
maybe there's other things we need. Like, may, you know, maybe we just try to get out of this one alive and then we'll mourn what we've lost later. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and Archive Inc., which is the sort of first island you have access to. It's the more, the greenery island. It's the island that's uh, temperate. Uh, the dude there, he looks like an, a librarian. And uh, several of the, uh, you know, those sort of extra goals are really funny like there's an old earth nightclub and he's like this is a this is a bastion of our culture <laughs> like the way he talks about everything uh, is like oh yes we can't lose our culture it's very very important yeah that's right laugh like, a little bit <laughs> all of the things he's clinging to yeah because it's that one island where it's like we hold on to all the shit from old earth yeah and it's like it's all kind of crap <laughs> like yep. it's extremely like uh shit middle-aged man has in his garage totally. or like pictures of in his old photo albums yep uh, it's it's really good it's like a very human thing right like this guy's hanging on to what he has left it's an old nightclub you know it's a corporate tower <laughs> like it's, it's really funny and very 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 human like of course if there was some kind of situation where our where life was threatened on earth you know this dude would be trying to protect his vintage car. You know he would. He totally would. Like, that would be as important to him as the 300,000 lives that are, you know, scattered across these buildings. Like, I'm not saying it's more important to him than those buildings or those people's lives, but they're equal in his mind. And that's a very good touch. The writing in this game is so underrated. It's, it's really, it's subtle and it's very good. Uh, and I, oh, Chris Avaloni, I think, is a... Yeah, I uh, was the writer for the game, so all due credit there for really good stuff. Yeah, but it's uh, I think the the other thing that I I just tend to watch out for is like um, again, sort of like meaningless optimism. Yeah, uh, or stuff that doesn't wrestle with anything. Like I think like I think there's ways to carry this off at least somewhat effectively. Like. I re like I rewatched The Martian not very long ago. Oh. Uh, which I think Surviving Mars owes a lot to. But Sure. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it my second time around. Uh because my criticisms from the first time still existed. Like I'm not sure it's a terribly interesting movie in a lot yeah. of ways. Like it is literally a castaway desert island adventure, right? Yep. For <laughs> Matt Damon, you know, trying to hack it on Earth. There's some Ready Player One-esque nerd culture, you know, touches. <laughs> yep. And it's all about, like, by and large, everyone is awesome and puts aside their very minor differences and works together and saves the day and brings him home. Yep. Um, and I get, you know... I don't like I guess I'm trying to figure out like why am I okay with that? And I guess maybe it's because like it is just such a simple, straightforward, like man versus nature. And it's just using this really straightforward adventure template. Yeah. That I'm kind of okay that it doesn't ask a whole lot of other questions. Like I still think there are there like I, I do think there's like there are implicit positions behind that movie in a lot of ways uh but it works for me which is surprising because usually it's the kind of thing i hate but i think 
it is maybe one of the best like successful examples of a trend that I tend to be very cynical about, which is um yeah, like optimistic sci-fi. Like that there is a fantastical future at which we will arrive, but that future doesn't clearly seem to re- wrestle with anything. Yeah. Uh, like there's no, there's no, like not only is it not really trying to address resonant problems within its own fictional context, but it also seems to have somehow cut out all the middle parts where we created this awesome society that could do all this stuff. Um, and I think maybe that's, you know, that's what the the Martian is kind of doing, right? Like, how the fuck did NASA become, like, a ridiculously well-funded, uh, you know, space agency that was capable of executing several Mars missions uh, yeah. in the space of a couple of years and solve all of these problems to the point where when they lose an astronaut, they somehow have the resources to, you know, put the gas, you know, <laughs> you know, put the foot down on the pedal and mount a rescue expedition to be Apollo 13. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, I think part of part of why that movie works and and I uh I've only seen it uh once, but I did totally enjoy it. I also have some issues with it. But I think part of it is that it both acknowledges that rugged individualism and inventiveness and uh sciencing the shit out of things. I think that's yes. the term he uses, right? Both yeah. that and good ass teamwork and different people who are good at different things and people of different genders and different races and different everything can come together. Like it does both the teamwork thing and the rugged individualist thing. And there's a certain satisfaction in media that acknowledges that both of those are are not only valid approaches, but necessary to solving certain complex problems. That is Sure hard to to wag a finger at, right? Like, oh, yes, the, he's acknowledging that like, one man could never do this alone. He needs a whole team of people to help him. But he sure also is a very smart guy. He can do a lot of things by himself. Like, it's a very, uh, actually has sort of both sides of that coin represented really well. And that goes a very long way, I think, in making that movie palatable, uh, even to really cynical people (laughs) that's actually a great point because there are two things that like that get fucked up that are beyond the control of the people involved uh the first is that no matter how smart and clever he is um his equipment fails him and he loses like you know it's it's a tough scene he loses all his food basically overnight like he loses the capacity to sustain life uh on mars um and it wasn't anything he had control over but it does put him in a position of like he just needs people to come through for him at this point there is there is nothing he can do at this point we have reached the end of what what a rugged individual can accomplish yeah and it requires people coming to save his ass for no good reason other than there's value in saving another human being yeah, And the other element of it is the same thing happens on a larger scale when they need to beg the uh, Chinese space agency for their rocket, their cargo rocket, yeah. uh, because they blew up their own. And again, it's this element of like, yeah, you can plan, you can be good, you can be experts, but that only goes so far. Like eventually everybody's going to need to put the hand out. You have to play nice with others or you're never going to get anywhere and like that it makes that rugged individualist stuff go down a lot easier i think 
personally. Yeah. No, totally, totally agreed. Um, but I, I think also that is a really limited sci-fi movie where it's like, it's near future. It's a really straightforward get person from point B back to point A, right? And like solve the problems we encounter along the way. Um, whereas like, I think when you're going a little more open-ended direction and building more of a science, like a sci-fi setting or world, uh, you do need to sort of expand the things that you're touching on. And this is where Surviving Mars really fails, uh, mm-hmm. is that it tr- both trivializes the difficulty of, of what it's asking you, uh, but then also seems to be aggressively devoid of curiosity about huh. uh, about what, like, where do these colonists come from, right? Like, what's happening back on Earth? Who are you working for? Like, what, how does any of this work? That That game does not care about that. That's interesting. Does the so the developer uh worked on the Tropico games previously, yep. right? Is there is there any sort of um carryover politically from that or I've never played a Tropico game. So I That's an interesting know. question. Uh I think there's some carryover in that a lot of the problems you I have with Surviving Mars I've had with other Tropico games like sure. I don't think they're particularly interesting as city builders in a lot of ways. Um, and it's really just the fact that they've got a more attractive setting that makes them work better in Tropico than I think in surviving Mars. But Tropico has always had a really interesting, um, <laughs> kind of racially charged, uh, humor about the entire thing. Like it's okay. <laughs> like the Tropico series is kind of gross. There's, there's no getting, getting around that. Like it is entirely about this, uh, idea of the banana Republic of the 1960s and seventies, uh, well, the fifties through the, through the seventies, right? Like where the CIA and the KGB are both like, you know, happy to come through with aid or coup attempts against you, no matter what, <laughs> Um, everyone is kind of dirt poor, but you're this like exploitative, uh, cynical El Presidente. Um, everything is sort of meant to scan as, uh, sort of Spanish descended Latin, uh, in, in some ways. And, yeah, so the, so I would say the, tro- the tropical politics, they did sort of have a politics, Again, it was in this sort of clueless way that was extremely um, thoughtless. Yeah. And so it was like, yeah, wasn't it, you know, that stuff was hilarious, right? Like, you know, banana republics and interference from, you know, the global north and uh, basically running massive, like, agricultural plantations uh, for overseas corporations. That's cool, right? And you can make a very pretty city builder out of that, but it doesn't conceal the fact that like this is an ancient history. Like this is like you're 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 having fun in games of the context that produced like a lot of civil wars, uh, you know, n- you know, narco cartels, um, to say nothing of like death squads and political oppression. And the game's kind of like, yeah, but this is all for laws, right? This is just this is just a game. This is just fun. Uh Surviving Mars doesn't go in that direction, so it doesn't have the sort of overtly gross politics. It just has kind of like no politics. I see. God. That is frustrating. 
Yeah. I, uh, and it's funny, like, I never played the uh, Anno game that was set on the moon. Uh, but I think there is like a. 2377? I forget. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but I never played that one. Uh, it seems like, it seems cool to me. Uh, like, I did enjoy the one they did in the sort of near future, which was like a climate ravaged world. Mm. Um, that was a more interesting one, but again, it didn't really dig into that. Like it, it was basically presenting a, um, well, you could be very conservationist or you could be very ruthless, soulless, corporate exploitative. Uh, and it was kind of agnostic about which approach, uh, you would take. And, the dynamics for being either kind of city didn't really change very much. Gotcha. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I guess that sounds like they were at least grappling on some level uh, with something, but yeah, it, it, hmm. maybe only on a surface, uh, surface level basis. I'm curious where you feel Star Trek ends up in all of this as a, well, obviously, uh, to what degree? Uh, different tracks uh, have this to a different degree, of course, but, uh, you know, presenting generally a utopian society that still has problems. And uh, we talked about this on the podcast before, but the thing that keeps me feeling good about Star Trek is that there are problems, but somebody cares. Um, people care and they want to do something about the problems. Yeah. They end up having far too easy solutions far too often. Uh, but the best track is showing humanity at its best attempting to solve problems and giving a shit about other humans while also, you know, reaching to the stars and doing all those cool things that are uh, really fun to think about and really fun to fantasize about, especially if you live on a fucked up planet where things are really bad, uh, as we all do. Uh, where do you come down on, on Trek's uh, sort of ability uh, to deal with politics on any level? Um, like, I think it... I think it varies a lot from show to show. And this is where I really wish yeah. I'd seen discovery. Uh, Cause I hear that's really different from a lot of previous tracks. I need to, um, but I like, I think there's an idea of star Trek that doesn't, that may never have really existed. This idea that like, Oh, Gene Roddenberry had this really articulated, clear vision and philosophy underlying star Trek. And all tre all Star Trek must be judged in relation to how well it adheres to and represents Roddenberry's vision, which was in many ways contra the apocalyptic trends of a lot of sci-fi that preceded Star Trek or, or was contemporary with Star Trek. Yeah. I'm in the middle of watching like the original series. Oh, shit. Okay. And I'm not sure that's really the vision I'm picking up. Right. Like, literally, like, the degree to which the Federation is still wrestling with major problems and is clearly not, like, solved. Like, there are degrees and there, there are ways in which this is a utopian government. But also there's an episode where Kirk goes to this prison planet that is run by someone who, to date, has been a hero of, like, prison reform. And Kirk is, like, in the lifetime of Captain Kirk, he's basically saying that prisons have been, like, abusive hellholes for all of human history. But the, until recently, until the Federation and this one researcher, like, really started improving it. 
but now you discover that that researcher has basically gone like full Mengele uh, uh. on his planet and is now like basically trying to mind jack uh, his prisoners, right? Like he's he's like trying to overwrite their their memories and their impulses, uh, and it's become this really dystopian uh, shit show. There's a lot of there, there's a lot of Trek that is about wrestling with our frailties and our flaws and our worst instincts, even in the context of a utopian future that we still have the tools. We still have the capacity to make a utopia into something awful, something shitty. Yeah. And so I just don't, I don't buy that Star Trek was ever this, um, was ever this like purely optimistic vision. I just, I, I never see that Star Trek. Like Star Trek is always a tension between a, per, a faith in the, the idea of progress, a faith that we can actually like create a more perfect union or a more perfect federation or a more perfect human society versus our darker desires, you know, our atavistic impulses. Um, I think all Star Trek wrestles with that. And I think it actually has a pretty, and I think that's good, right? Like I, I, I think yeah. that works. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, there are some elements of, of some parts of Trek that are almost comical, uh, in the way like, Oh, you know, this just isn't a problem anymore. And it's like, it, it never shows how the work was done to make something not a problem anymore. Uh, and yes, they do use technology as magic sometimes to solve certain things which is uh pretty uh goofy and uh you know ha has some issues in the world we live in but I, I i like believing that one day people who are good will have the power to create change i like that idea just that yeah. very just core kernel of an idea is uh it's always going to be something there for me on my worst days and uh so i i do appreciate it that and farscape yeah. Uh, Farscape will always be my favorite thing ever, probably. Someday there'll be a place for Tom Paris. Oh, Tom Paris is the world can succeed someday. <laughs> God! God, Voyager! Oh, oh God. You know, uh, Tom, Tom Paris isn't all bad because he created the, the, uh, the holodeck program where uh, Captain Janeway has to be a spider queen. And um, that's pretty cool. Man, I really need to start watching the show more aggressively. I need to get to that yeah. shit. Like, yeah. she becomes Sheila, basically. It's amazing, bro. Okay, hang on. Is she like it's amazing OG Sheila, or is she like new Shadow of War uh, Sheila, I, where it's kind of like sexy Spider Queen? She is a sexy Spider Queen. All it's right. so good. Yeah, I'll watch that. <sighs> it's like. God, it's the fucking best thing. She's Queen Arachnia is the name of it. It's oh fucking hell. Here. Here, I'll yeah, send you a I cool link. You see some pictures? Alright, good. But you're gonna you're gonna need to see that. I mean, if nothing else, that's probably Tom Paris's greatest achievement in his crappy life. Uh is this. It's it's real good. And you should you should watch that. Alright. Um, if there's Wait, no this other is like a black and white noir, yes. like glamour, what the fuck? Okay, it's the best. Thing. I really need to get on, get in on this. Is this like this, a tribute to like OG Star Trek? Uh it's more of a tribute to OG like 
40s sci-fi like ah. like uh or even even earlier like very 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 early like space serials uh, and things like that it's it's very like yeah it's it's really good and it has the music you would expect from that era and the beautiful black and white photography you just you should watch that if nothing else if voyager is giving you nothing else yeah it's it's that yeah all right, I, I think it's time for us to go into our weekend correspondence. As always, uh, if you have a question, uh, you can send it in uh, to questions at idleweekend.net. And our first question here uh, comes from Harry. Probably not Harry Kim, but Harry. Uh, the meat of my question is, how much should we rely on critics to shape our opinions and thoughts on new and old media? This came up most recently in your discussion of the new Blade Runner movie. Your discussion brought up a bunch of interesting themes and motifs uh, that movie investigated, including gender rights, labor politics, and a really interesting look at some of the different characters. You also talked about your old theories of what happened in the original and how they might have shifted. But you also mentioned a relative of Danielle's who said, so was he a robot or not? I'm, I'm using uh, the actual accent that was said in. This pretty much mirrors my immediate response to the film. I do love what these movies try to do, but sometimes I don't really, quote, get it until after hearing a couple of podcasts or reading a couple of articles. I do love it after that, but it does take me some time. Now, I don't have your background in film or media analysis, but while no one expects everyone to have a take on the latest innovation in, say, town planning, it is sort of expected for everyone to have their own take on the latest film, Star Wars especially. Am I right in that this expectation exists? And if so, is this a good or a bad thing? How critically should we look at new movies? Is it all right to offload some of that analysis to others? Do we ever lose something in that process? Harry. Oh, well, I think you should, like, I, I think it's a good idea for folks to uh, analyze the things that they love and look at the things that they love uh, with a critical eye. Because I think that's useful for understanding yourself and understanding what your impulses are and what kind of does it for you. Uh, in terms of, of also not just sort of analyzing yourself as a person, but also it, it helps you to find things you like. It helps you to actually sort of uh, know what's going to do something for you. Uh, so just as like a utility thing in your own life, it can be helpful. I think it's useful uh, to have a degree of uh, media literacy Certainly, uh, because I think, obviously, I'm always going from the position that media is important and imparts a lot of interesting and important messages uh, in any level of society, and that it's really good to look at those things with a critical eye and think about those things, uh, because obviously it makes a difference in people's lives. It makes a difference to what you think and how you feel. Uh, but with that said, I don't think everybody needs to... Um, to do a three-hour podcast on uh, on how they feel about Blade Runner twenty forty nine, I don't I don't think you need to do that to to fully uh, get the benefits of that sort of thing. And I think it's okay to offload some of that to critics if you feel like you trust them intellectually uh, on that level. Like I I don't know much about town planning. You're right. I don't know a damn thing about town planning that didn't come from uh, playing City Skylines. So uh, <laughs> clearly there are a lot of areas I, I need to uh, read up on. Um, but this is also related to the problem uh, that you're bringing up, Harry, in terms of everyone has to have their own take on the latest film, uh, Star Wars especially. And I do think that actually kind of uh, sucks to some degree. Um, that is part of the whole, you know, everybody has to have their take and then the counter take and then the counter counter take. And that's all Twitter is for three days. And it, and it is really exhausting and actually 
counterproductive in some ways because it can be sort of it can be so tiring that people just don't want to engage and that's a little sad right uh so i guess that's my piece harry those are how i feel about those those questions yeah i mean i think for the most part like you don't need to have your own take like i think there is a pressure or a feeling that like you need to be part of the conversation but like yeah you really don't like is the conversation actually interesting to you like then by all means you know engage with it uh but you can mostly be there as a spectator rather than a participant too that's just fine um i think there's this weird element of I don't know. It, maybe it's the democratization of media that's come with the internet, but like I see the same thing in journalism and politics. This idea that like everyone needs to talk like a pundit now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like the fact that like increasingly, if you see like man on the street interviews uh, around politics, you'll hear people sort of using like the rhetoric that you'll hear on like Sunday morning shows or you know, what the talking heads on cable TV will be saying, uh, you know, well, is that, you know, how does that relate to the white working class in the Rust Belt and things like that? Like, do people like, do people really think of themselves that way? Or are they just convincing themselves that they need to think this way? Because that's how the authorities on television talk, right? That's how the discourse on the internet is talking. Everyone's trying to be more knowing and more savvy than the last person. Yeah. Um, and it's okay to not, it's, it's actually better to not feel like you need to front like that. Right. Like a lot of those people having those conversations are winging it or, uh, you know, trying to project an image as much as anyone else. Um, like there's a lot of expertise in the world that doesn't necessarily guarantee that anyone's arriving at some sort of like unique or novel or brilliant insight. Yeah. Um, so don't feel like because these conversations are happening, you need to take part in them. Like find the ones that are fun to follow and, and be a spectator. I think it's actually kind of shitty that there's this pressure to adopt the language and framing of sort of media consumers of a field and content creators around a field rather than just as yourself applying your own lens, applying your own perspective. Um, The other part of this is like, it's a learned skill too. Like I didn't start, I didn't have the capacity to analyze the text or subtext of a movie until like I started seriously getting into it and started reading critical essays now it's fun for me because there's a lot more that i can pull out of movies there's a lot more i can pull out of different works that's a lot of fun uh because it makes a lot of shit that is otherwise boring suddenly really interesting right like yes i think uh like the division is a bad game in a lot of ways it's good in some it's it's good in some key ways but like in terms of what it says it's a bad thing um yeah but I can still like kind of enjoy it because it is fascinating in the way, the ways it is bad. And it is fascinating basically because I'm applying sort of critical media skills uh, that I've learned primarily by reading smart people over the years and I'm applying it to that game and sort of coming away with my own, my own reading on it, my own take 
and that's and that's fun. But that's something I sort of came by out of genuine enthusiasm for reading other people's criticism. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree completely. Uh, our next email comes from a different Harry. Yeah. Uh, hi, Idle Weekend. I was wondering if you had any examples of games or other obscure media that would be good to teach in schools, be it history, English, or history, or other subjects. I would nominate 80 Days personally as a great example of transforming an older book to hit modern audiences in the same way the Wonders of Trains did in the past. Cheers, Harry. Oh, wow. This is a really good question. Um, Scare media. I mean, the like the shitty examples got to be like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I've always been a little curious about it. I've never read it. Don't and... it, like I tried, man. It's it's a it's a funny gag that like is just yeah. awful to try to slog yeah. through. God, uh, actually, um, Daniel Orthberg's, like, text from Jane Eyre is legitimately kind of wonderful. And some of his writing on, um, (laughs) on, like, historical, uh, art history, uh, as, as, like, a joke on the toast is fucking wonderful and funny and gets at a lot of the ideas that were put forth in a lot of, like, very boring uh, not boring, but, uh, you know, very wordy uh, pieces of Victorian fiction uh, and the way he's like broken them down in mm-hmm. certain ways is really, really wonderful. To that end, uh, like Hark a Vagrant would be something that would be really useful in a lot of different classes. Sure. Uh, like that is <laughs> like uh, if you ever like. Look up dude watching with the Brontes. Um. <laughs> To really like maybe like before you dig into uh various works from the Bronte sisters, uh maybe, Dude watching maybe the read Brontes, that comic. is that what it's called? Pardon? Dude watching the Brontes? No. Is that what it's Dude watching with the Brontes. Oh, perfect. <laughs> uh I'm looking this up now and I love this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. And like a lot of times she sort of like would also put down a little essay about like why this topic was resonant for her and a lot of times she's sort of examining uh you know cherished parts of the western canon maybe or like uh canadian history or north american history <laughs> with uh sort of an irreverent gaze but also sort of a revi- revisionist gaze right like okay well this is the story this like this is an, abs- an absurd version of the story we all learn in school and here's actually like if you think about this maybe just for a minute more from the perspective of somebody else in the story, maybe it takes on a different cast. Uh yeah. no, Hark of Agrant, I think the absolute world of. Um think it's one of the best comics like, you know, the last like 15, 20 years. Um it's I'm, it's this great. Just elevated to the very top of the I need to fucking make time for this. So thank you. Thank yeah, you for that. It's great. Games that could bring like Oh, the other thing I want to shout out. Uh, they did, most of them didn't really work that well, but the Muppet Christmas Carol is really fucking good. Oh, yes. Yes. That's a great... I watch that one every Christmas. I think it's one of the only uh, good uh, Christmas movies and one of the only good adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Uh, I mean, I'll fight you on the... Like, there's like I, like there's a lot of good... Like, 
Uh, there's good Christmas movies. Uh, like yeah, Die Hard, one and two. Uh, at least one. Uh, but also like uh, <laughs> Remember the Night. Like there's there's a lot of good ones, but like most of them are pretty pretty saccharine and terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do like that. It is silly, but having Gonzo as a character playing Charles Dickens basically in that so good. And it gives a place for him to basically like narrate passages from the book. And it serves to point out how great some of the writing in the books is. Though I think it was a listener who actually pointed out that um I attributed a quote to Dickens and a Christmas Carol that is actually a line that was created for him up at Christmas Carol. Wait, really? Yeah. The um the Scrooge watched as the years performed their terrible dance line oh. is a line I was convinced existed in the original work because it is a brilliant, uh, it's a be- it's a beautiful line, uh, but apparently it appears I, nowhere yeah. in A Christmas Carol. That's, I guess that does make sense. I go to a production in Providence, Rhode Island of A Christmas Carol every single year on Christmas Eve, uh, so I probably should have known that. <laughs> But I didn't. So, you know, good job, Muppet Christmas Carol. That's how well you did. Wow. Um, all right. Well, I guess aside from the Muppet Christmas Carol, Rob, is there anything you're watching or reading or uh, playing that's extra special right now? Um, so this past week, I actually, uh, because I'm, I'm living that 4K life now, I'm trying to find sort of like definitive oh. editions, good transfers of movies. Uh, I watched Goodfellas for the first time in like 10 years. Oh, shit. Okay. And I had forgotten just how fucking good that movie is. Um, it is... it That movie just moves with such an economy of storytelling and action. Like, literally, it never, it never slows down to really lay out what you're going to be watching or when the real story is going to begin. It begins sort of as a prelude to itself, and then it's just into the action. Like, it... Like, the main character is giving you background on his life and on the mafia. And then he never really stops. And it's only like sort of at the very end that you realize that all of this is in the context of basically him selling out uh, the mob and turning state's evidence. Uh, But it is just, it's, you know, hilarious. It is stylish. It is uh, a really beautifully shot film uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, De Niro, Pesci, and Leota are such good performers. And I, I think the thing I never really noticed until this most recent viewing. What, have, have you watched Goodfellas like any time recent-ish? It's been a little while. It was probably film school, so probably yeah. like 12 years ago. All right, but you know the clip everyone sees, like the, the funny like a clown? Like what, what, how am I fun? That, that part where Joe Pesci yeah. is sort of demanding to know why he's funny. But the part where... um. Ray Liotta is really like overacting in some ways. Like he's laughing way too hard. He's way too animated. It's weird. Watching it in this most recent time was the first time I realized that um, he only does it really when he's around Joe Pesci's character. Like he only does it when he's desperately trying to keep his shitty asshole friends (laughs) from descending into like violence and carnage. And there's this element of like, like Henry Hill 
is basically being slowly like driven around the bend by his friends. Like he, yeah. they actually scare him, and he actually wants to stop having. Like he loves being a criminal, right? He loves being a wise guy. He loves being the shit out of someone who has a beating coming in his eyes. Like he's no fucking hero. But there is just a level of like pure unhinged, um, like sort of gleeful violence that his friends engage in that he doesn't like. It makes him sick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's just trying to like, for years, I thought Leota was kind of the weak link in that cast that like... Mm some of his performance was just really felt off kilter, off base, didn't feel natural. And it wasn't until his most recent viewing that I was like, holy shit, of course it's not natural. He's scared of his buddies. Yeah. And you're like, I mean, we've all had friends like that, right? We've all had friends when we're out with them where it's like this night can end well, or it can end in just a complete travesty. And somehow like it's on me to make sure that they listen to the better angels of their nature <laughs> rather than like, go to whatever dark place causes them to like lash out. Um, and I never really picked up on that as a major theme of the movie. Uh, but this most recent time I did. Um, the other part I loved is that Goodfellas is kind of a sacred text of the dude movie canon. Yes. In some ways. Yeah. Like this is a movie that if you're in a fraternity, this movie will be shown a few times probably people are going to watch this movie people will you know have their favorite scenes uh there's a really good onion article i think about like uh scholars suspect that clips of the goodfellas on youtube may be parts of a larger work um which i think is how a lot of that movie is consumed these days but oh that and that uh god that fucking new york post piece women are not capable of understanding goodfellas uh that do Wait. you remember when this came out like two no. years ago oh god this is it was a whole fucking thing oh wow um I'm, oh yeah holy shit i just found it it, it is uh a, a, a thing you should read it uh it's about women don't understand this movie because they don't understand ball busting basically that is the whole thesis of this whole horrible horrible piece from like 2015 oh no I think. Oh my god. To a woman, it is. the good fellas are lowlifes. To guys, they're hilarious. They're heroes. They rule the roost. <laughs> when the sex and the city girls sit around at brunch, they're a tightly knit, knit click, but their rule is to always be sympathetic and supportive as each each describes their problems, usually involving the men in their life. As Goodfellas shows us, guys hanging out together don't really like to talk about the women in their lives because that's too real. We'd much rather discuss... Uh, what we'd much rather do than discuss our problems and be supportive, scare quotes, is keep the laughs coming to endlessly bust each other's balls. Fuck this Oh guy. my god, anyway. this is one of the most un <laughs> like, this is an unhealthy reading of this fucking movie. It really is? Oh my god. Like This, this is movie was meant to be uh, absolutely, like, it's based on a real book, right? Wise Guy? Yeah, it's based uh, on Henry somewhat, Hill's, like... Somewhat true to life, yeah. like, you know... I'm sure dramatized in many ways, but uh, it comes from some of the real place of a guy who is fucking scared shitless of how, like you're saying, of, of how crazy his friends are who are just going to kill people uh, for no good reason. Then he has to, you know, bury the body I, like this guy right here. Sure. Uh, sure. Didn't get that message. Um. Yeah. And this is this is the thing, right? Is like 
but I'm not sure Henry gets it either. Like, yeah, it's an interesting case of like the narrator is unreliable because he is framing everything in this really idyllic, like, well, before it all went bad, being a mobster was great. And here were the rules and here's how it all worked. And here was our code and here's how we stood by each other. And over the course of the movie, it is shown repeatedly that all of that is bullshit. When he goes to prison, his family goes broke and are like practically starving because it turns out family doesn't have your back. Like once you go away, uh, there's not much assistance given to your, your, your nuclear family, right? Like your actual family will be abandoned by your crime family. Uh, if you're in jail, at least that was his experience. Yeah. Whatever help they were provided was like minimal, like, you know, here's a few bucks, but it doesn't actually solve any problems. And yet he doesn't see that. Like when his wife comes and tells him, yo, we're like moving out of the house and we've got no money and things are really fucking bad. Um, he tells her, well, I told you that was how it's going to be. That's how it always is when a guy goes away. And like, no, that's not that's not how you saw things. Like, that's not the story you were telling earlier in the movie. Like, earlier, the family always has your back. You're never going to be alone. You're, you know, but the movie, like, Henry seamlessly moves from thinking the family's always going to be there for you and you're always, like, one of a group to thinking, well, fundamentally, we're on our own here. And he never sees that there's a contradiction. He never sees that there was a promise broken because he idealizes this bullshit so much. Even to the end, he's still saying like how great it was to be a mobster and how much fun it was, even though we've seen like his friends scared him. Uh, His friends, you know, talk about the ultimate like breach of trust and code. His friends like went on a murder spree, wiping out everybody involved in a heist they all shared together. Like, that's what happens. Like, and he never really gets until basically he's the last man standing that his best friend, Jimmy, uh, De Niro's character, is a monster and yeah. will kill him without a second thought. And even then, he's still like, well, these are, these are my boys. These are my buddies. And so it's, it's an interesting movie because, like, the movie does glamorize this shit with the soundtrack, with the way it's edited. Like... It's got this propulsive movement. It is a fun and exciting movie to watch in a lot of ways. But that's kind of that, like, that is Henry's perspective on it. And he's unreliable as all hell because the reality is the sadness and terror that is sort of underscoring every scene. Yeah. Yes. It might, uh, I don't know. It might be my favorite Scorsese movie. It might be. I mean, is, the, is there a more watchable one? No, definitely not. God, I go back and forth. I do go back and forth. What's your other one? (sighs) I haven't seen Silence, by the way, which I hear I really. Oh, actually, I haven't either. I mean, I'm not the biggest Scorsese fan. That's the other thing I should probably uh, say. Like, he's a brilliant director. No question. Uh, But his movies, I well, his movies are a perfect example. Sometimes it depends. Obviously I think Goodfellas is great of like, it's great. The craft is great. Not my favorite thing in the world. So, you know, uh, but I do really like Goodfellas. Goodfellas is, Oh, it is really fun to watch. All right. I need to watch it again. I need to watch it again. Just put that on the list. The infinite list. I think but, uh, even Kandun, I think is actually kind of underrated. Yeah. Yeah. Like, All right, I'll I'll hear your argument for that. No, I mean, I thought it was like I heard like it was one of those things I went in with super low expectations. Like I thought it was just gonna be dog shit, 
And then I walked, like, I sort of stumbled into it on cable one day and, like, was just riveted. Like, just as this sort of lovely portrait of a young Dalai Lama, right? And, like, the interplay between you're being a holy figure, but also you're a little kid in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, living, like, sharing a lot with kids of that generation. It's, I think it's a, beautiful film especially because it ends on such a sad note right with the um with the flight from tibet as the chinese invade um no so i mean i think like even some of his weaker films or films they're considered weaker um i think they you know they can they can kind of work you sure it's not shark tale you sure that's not uh i'm just kidding um yeah i god like i feel complicated feelings about the departed all the time I don't think it's it's anywhere near his best work by any means. Uh, but whether or not I like that movie changes on like a, a week-to-week basis, <laughs> which should tell you something, I guess, about me. Um, but yeah, I... As of this minute, Goodfellas is probably my... No! Oh my God! Jesus, what am I saying? Bringing out the dead. Bringing out the dead is my actual favorite. That's so good. God, I always forget that's him, and I don't know why I always forget that's him. It doesn't um, feel like an. It doesn't feel like a Scorsese movie. Like there's the music, so different. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's it's so much more manic and propulsive. Uh, like obviously, Goodfellas is a little bit manic and propulsive, but like Bringing Out the Dead is really manic and propulsive. But it's also it's poetic in a lot of ways. It's like it's a ugly good and crazy beautiful. Nick Cage movie. Yes, it sh- it is. It absolutely is. I don't know why I always forget that he did Bringing Out the Dead, but that's that's the favorite. And I guess uh, Goodfellas is the one that's always sort of in second place for. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I like that movie <laughs> a lot because it is like un- like the sort of exaggerated Nicolas Cage character. Like that is always playing with fire. You don't know what you're going to get. Oh yeah. Um. But here it's actually contextualized in a way that's useful. Like, it's not just, oh, he's just chewing through all the scenery. Uh, it's that he is a deeply sad and basically, like, strung out uh, EMT in this movie. Yeah. Like, he is all over the map because he's flying high uh, and having brutal crashes uh, right and left, uh, physical and metaphorical. Um and yeah, just the entire movie has this sort of unhit. Like the entire movie feels like a hallucination after you haven't slept for weeks, which is I yeah. think I think that's literally the circumstance he's in. Yep. Um, yeah. Oh god, I love it. It's such that a sad movie. So fucking good. It is. It's sad and it's also beautiful and it's such a love letter to New York in the the like New York's beautiful ugliness in the worst and best ways the shower of sparks as they cut that guy free of that wrought iron fence over the skyline is just the unexpected sublime christ i love that movie it's a great movie it it is so good it is so good oh my god that's so good what else is good in your world danielle oh yeah yes yes sorry i'll talk about bringing out the dead for 10 hours if i don't uh, go on so uh, I wrote about it this week, but I'm not going to talk about the things uh, that I wrote about in because why would I do that? That would be just that's too much. I double dip right and thing. left on the show. You should not hesitate. But if you got other angles, let's let's, <laughs> well, let's hear your takes. All right. All right. Fine. So uh, the other day, uh, I'll give you like the, the little backstory on it, too. So that'll be fun. I didn't like Daredevil very much. I thought it was pretty crappy by the end, especially Catholic guilt. Batman. He's just not my dude. It's fine. He's not my dude. You know, do you get to season two dude. of Daredevil, or do you this feel this way? Yeah, I watched one? the whole thing. Oh, okay. I, I 
whatever. Half of it is already erased from my mind. I just thought it was really silly and not great. So I didn't have high hopes for The Punisher. Oh, let's put it that way. I am not watching Jessica Jones until my girlfriend comes back because she's been gone uh, for, for like a week now. Uh, and so I was waiting on, on Jessica Jones season two because, you know, I love me some Jessica Jones. Uh, the Punisher is great, actually. I had the lowest expectations and maybe that's part of why I think it's so great. Uh, but it's fucking good. It is a good-ass show. Uh, arguably, uh has at least anti-war vibes. I don't know if I would call the show anti-war, uh, but it actually gives a fuck about veterans, which is amazing. Uh, there are a lot of scenes in the show uh, that take place in sort of a, a veteran support group for folks who have like PTSD after the war and also, you know, have come home and they're trying to make a life. Uh, it actually goes into the inner life of what uh, soldiers with PTSD might experience. And in a way that's not insulting and crappy and uh, and and, you know, trivializing uh, in a lot of ways. And I think media tries to do that sometimes and maybe has good intentions, but it can be very trivializing. Like, oh, this person is just walking uh, walking PTSD, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, no, there's a, there's a person and they're suffering from something. That's not, don't, you know, don't trivialize that. Uh, as is, obviously it's a show about the Punisher, Frank Castle. He was on Daredevil season two. Uh, he is a guy who did some shady shit in the war. Uh, and, uh, basically had his family murdered and he's really upset about it. He, he is sort of like his performance. And let me make sure I, uh, God, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to pull it up. The Punisher. John Berenthal. Yes. Him, John Berenthal. My God, that fucking performance. It's actually amazing. It yep. is fan fucking tastic. He has a character. I don't give much of a shit about, but the actor actually makes him so compelling and, and, genuinely i care about this guy even though like you show me like oh the punisher you play that like you know the the crappy rock music in the background and you show his like his logo and i'm like yeah okay it's a it's a white it's an angry white man with a gun that's great uh but this performance is raw and it's good and it is so fragile and fractured like this is a person who some, sometimes that that shows. Sometimes the the mask of the Punisher slips a little bit, and it just shows he is he is hurt and he is sad and he is suffering, and it's really good. And he doesn't love the violence that he does. He is disturbed by it on some level, and it's good. The show both glorifies violence because it's, it sure is showing a bad dude doing some bad shit, uh, and also shows it to be like gross and not particularly satisfying. And uh, oftentimes really disturbing and, and not fun. So the show has it both ways, which is a definite complication. Uh, but I am very, very compelled by what I've seen so far. How far have you gotten? I'm still like halfway in, like episode six. Have he and Lieberman gotten drunk yet? No, okay. no, not yet. Okay. Um, yeah, there's. Did a, you watch The Punisher? Yeah, I, no, I got, I got way into The Punisher. Um, okay, cool, cool, good. And. I liked it so much more than I thought. Cause like, just like you said, um, I was super wary of a angry white guy with a gun show. Yeah. Uh, and explicitly like there, are, there are a lot of different, like, like any comic book character. Uh, this is a character that's been through a lot of different arcs, a lot of different views on the character and a lot of different positions it's taken, uh, over the years. Yeah. Um, and so like you can read a lot into this character I think 
Berenthal's take on it makes me feel better about like rooting for this guy on some level. Yeah. There's a deeply like human, decent, relatable aspect to it. Now the the problem is as Berenthal's playing him, he's too This is a guy who is clearly too good a candidate for like therapy in some ways to like forever <laughs> sure. be stuck in the deepest darkest grief that he is in in this show like which i like i think if he were legitimately just a uh violence addicted uh vengeful uh traumatized uh you know victim slash hero uh, i think that that's a tough show to watch endlessly and i'm curious to see if they continue on with like how you know, what does season two of the Punisher look like, right? But this version of the character is like very capable of digging into his own motivations and the ethics of what he does and reading the feelings and reactions of the people around him. Uh, that like it's weird. Like he's a very like he's a very good listener. He's a very like it's yeah. here comes the Punisher here to empathize with you. Uh, but that's, and help you and help fix your car and tell your daughter that she doesn't need to call a guy. Yeah, she can be the mechanic. Like it's so crazy. Like the you know, like it's it's wonderful the different sides of this guy. Sorry, I'm no, I'm but that's a, that's such a good scene though. Is him repairing the sink yeah. with the daughter. Uh, and it's so good. But it's also a scene. I guess they're actually watching a working. Sorry, uh, they're working on a faucet or something at the time. But yeah, sorry, sorry, I keep interrupting. Yeah. Like they're like it's, but it's also a scene that makes me think like, ah, this guy would be able to. This guy actually could climb out of this. Um, yes, and maybe maybe that's the kind of the what the, what the season is the the series is getting as that yeah he could he chooses not to. Uh, but at a certain point that becomes exasperating. But it's yeah it's um, it's a really brilliant performance. Uh, he's a he's a really good actor. Uh, he has a short but really hard to forget uh moment in uh Sicario. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, did you see Sicario? I don't think I did, which is uh, another <laughs> It's it's good, but um yeah, so he's uh sort of a uh I guess the way I'd, I'd call it is like he's sort of a uh, honeypot as it were in, in okay. Sicario. Um Honeypot slash uh, assassin, uh, but sure. yeah. So he, he's a great actor. Uh, th- there's a lot of really strong performances on this. Um, I think uh, uh, I think it's uh, Eben Moss uh, Bachrocks, uh David Lieberman is yeah. a really great character. Um, Diana Madani is great. Amber Rose uh, Reva and boy, you know we talked before about like sleazy charisma on this show. Oh, ben yeah. Barnes as Billy Russo is just like, oh, yeah, pretty Billy <laughs> or whatever his name is. Yeah, like, yeah, just God. charm without any genuine emotion or heart. It really becomes like a chilling performance in just how irresistible the guy is and just how increasingly like is there like you start to wonder, like, is there anything behind this? You know, like it is. He's a hard to resist character, but the ways you react to him and the way people react to him, it begins to feel like increasingly polished and practiced to the point where it's almost a little off-putting. Uh, yeah. It's a really good performance. 
is a snake in a suit with a hot little accent and perfect hair. It's, yep. oh my God. Yeah, it's perfect. I want to ask, uh, you, you mentioned briefly, but uh, I want to ask how you felt about Madani, Agent Madani, because I have really complicated feelings and I like that I have complicated feelings about her. Uh, so early, very early on, and of course, I, I should probably mention, uh, it's Shora Ashtaglu, I think is how you pronounce her Achtashlu, name. Uh, yeah. She plays, Ash, sorry, say that again? I, I think it's uh, Ashtaglu. Ashtaglu, awesome. She plays her mother uh, in this show, and uh, any anything she shows up in, I mean, she could be reading the fucking, you know, uh, phone book, and I would I would show up to, to listen to her talk. Um, but uh, Madani is somebody who I feel like I wouldn't like her in real nope. life, uh, but I love her as a character. She sure is a great character. She basically is playing what is usually like the hotshot young white guy who comes in, thinks he does everything perfectly, his shit doesn't stink, and he's an awesome agent, only it's a Persian woman. And that's really kind of cool and amazing. She also has other dimensions to her character as well, but that aspect of it I think is sort of awesome and amazing. It, it feels like a smarter inversion of character than you usually see on a Marvel TV show, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, she even has a line um, that is so, so good uh, where she's, she basically says, like, I believe in the system. Like, she's like this hotshot agent, CIA agent. Uh, and she's like, I believe in the system. And it's like, wow, do you? Really? <laughs> and it's just this moment where she's talking to her mom and saying this, and it's incredible. And her mother has that moment of like, oh, sweetheart. This uh, <laughs> is also... Uh, incredible and subtle and very like, wow, this show is a thousand. I think it was that scene where I, I sat there and I was like, wow, this show is a thousand times smarter than I thought it would be. <laughs> that is that is good and subtle and a subtle dig. And I and I love that about her. Uh, what What's your take on the character? I'm, I'm curious to hear. Yeah, it's a, I like I like the direction they've gone with the character. I'm not sure I like Madani uh, because of that sort of I'm a good little soldier uh, thing. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, there's all these moments where, like, the alarm bells should be ringing more for her, right? Like, yeah. there's all these things, like, are you really on the side of the angels here? Like, are you, like, she is, now, admittedly, she is digging into something she like, her, like that her superiors don't want her to. She is trying to, like, get into sort of a whistleblower uh, position. Yeah. But at the same time, like, she is excessively willing to take things at face value past the point where, like, we're, as the audience, we know that, like, man, there's snakes all around you, Madani. Yeah. Like, you, like, none of these people are really who they present themselves to be, and you're missing it. She doesn't see that, though. Uh, like, she doesn't have that information. And so it's kind of exasperating. Like, in many ways, she's a admirable character, but, like, Again, a little too maybe straightforward or not conspiratorial enough to see what she's stepping into. Um, but yeah, I do like it because it means that as she gets dragged toward the center of this, uh, you know, conspiracy, it's sort of come by honestly, uh, right? That like she doesn't, it's not like she has one encounter with the Punisher and he's like, yo, I'm good. And there's a conspiracy all around you. And she's like, oh, wow, I had no idea. Let me get on that. <laughs> she is so yeah. deeply invested in this status quo, right? Like she thinks it's a matter of like, well, there's a couple bad apples maybe. There's, you know, there's a few bad actors. Uh, but if I can just root that out, uh, we'll be able to set things right. And 
uh, yeah, I think it's it's frust- she's she's a frustrating character, but it's a good a good performance because we know that the problems are much bigger than that. Yeah. Yes. And can we just talk for one second how much Agent Orange looks like Mike Pence? Like can we just can we just acknowledge that for one second? Which one? It's incredible. The evil guy who loses his eye doing torture. Oh shit. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. He looks exactly like Mike Pence. And I can't like Considering how many smart little subtle digs are in this show, I ca- I can't imagine that's completely unintentional, right? Like, come on, that's there's yeah. something there. There's something to that. This show is smarter than it ever looked like it was going to be. Um, I even really loved uh, Karen in this show, and I never was interested in her very much in Daredevil. I I thought she was like a really reductive kind of boring character in Daredevil. Uh, and here she is, like, actually working as a journalist and uh, doing the fucking cool things and being something of a... At least, again, I, as of six episodes in, I have to say all of this with a caveat, because things yeah. could go to absolute hell and be trash uh, later on. But as of, as of like, episode, I think, six uh, at this point, uh, she's sort of, like, a, an actual interesting love interest-ish uh, for Frank Castle and not just like, uh, you know, a sort of like a delicate flower who, who doesn't want to get her hands dirty. She's like, no, we're, I want to use the power of the press. Yeah. Um, there's a beautiful scene with her and, and Frank where he loses his temper at her and he's screaming. And then he kind of reveals like, I can't let this happen to you. Like, I can't let you be implicated in my dirty, horrible disgustingness, like the shit that follows me around everywhere. Uh, that is like a really incredible scene. Uh, that actually shows that she has both some backbone and the ability to kind of stand up to him. Because, yeah, he's totally an, an asshole. Like, he's an asshole. He's not, like, a great guy. Uh, he, he has a code, and he's, and he's trying to do something arguably good by exposing some of the, the bullshit and, yeah, killing people who are horrible and have done horrible things. Uh, but it that scene really, really, really stuck with me uh, for, for all of that. For, like, hey, Karen's not just a one-dimensional, one-note, you know, chick who wants to do some good in the world. She actually is, like, has some fucking backbone, and that's cool. And again, is taking something that I thought kind of sucked a little bit about Daredevil and it actually makes it good and complicated here. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, like, Daredevil's a badly written show in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, And I think (laughs) pretty much, like, it's weird. They're all fine performances, uh, but every time... Foggy, Karen, and Matt are in a scene together. It's just the worst garbage. It's just always <laughs> bad. It's always like characters just explicitly stating their motivation to each other uh, and then like leaving in a huff. Like that's every scene. It's all terrible. They're all ill served by it. It's why I actually did like the Electra uh, subplot in a lot of ways because yeah, it was like, you know, she makes sense in Matt's world. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because we do live in this, like, it's a world of superheroes and monsters and this Talia Al Ghul ass, uh, like, <laughs> assassin leader makes a degree of sense and feels consistent with uh, Daredevil and, and the arc that character is on in a way that Foggy and Karen just increasingly don't. And their only purpose is to be there and be like, Matt, why don't you, you know, have you considered not being a superhero? Like... <laughs> Why don't you just sit back and like hang out with us at the bar? Be a lawyer. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. So no, it's it totally like totally. Uh, Karen ends up in a better place uh, here. Um, the last thing I do want to say though. Yeah. 
Daredevil's buddy. Uh, the guy running support group. Um, Hoyle, I think that's is that his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, sorry, I'll find his actual uh, name. Jason uh, Moore. Jason R. Moore. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Uh, that is the worst support group I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like, not great. Like, <laughs> you're totally right. Like there is a guy literally trying to radicalize angry alienated veterans in the support group and Hoyle's like huh that's a really interesting point of view you have there like MAGA guy uh like what you know what does the group think about that and they're like yeah I do think our country's fucked over and we need to get our own back at the point of a gun and he's like well that's interesting sure sure I don't like it is like nobody's getting better in that group it's like a bunch of guys like it's amazing I, I like i don't know if you've hit it yet but there is a scene where literally as the the stress level continues to increase uh somebody asks him like you know what do you do like what do you believe in right do you still have hope uh for like basically the future for readjusting to the world all this stuff and hoyle's basically like nah not really <laughs> he's like i got nothing for you sorry and it's like i get that like he has a dark night of the soul like absolutely maybe don't tell a room with at least one or two people who are dangling by a thread that in fact yeah. like yeah things are hopeless yeah <laughs> jesus you're you're totally right like i don't think he even has any like actual psychological training i think he just was like he's just got a basement the dude who cares and is just like i guess this do you know what it reminds me of now that we're now that we're talking about this do you remember the arc in orange is the new black where what's his healy starts a support group and it's like the most toxic and horrible place and he's like this is an open door let's all talk about what we're mad about and it like puts people in actual like danger of being killed in the prison yeah and he just thinks he's doing a great job that's a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's such a, a good point. Is like, on. yeah, it's it's kind of this whole like, oh yeah, inherently it is a good thing that we have this support group, right? Uh, yeah. People talking about their feelings and being supportive of each other—that is obviously an end unto itself. And if you look, like, like midway through the series, I'm like, wait, is anyone going to come out of that group better off? Like, is a single person going to be, like, helped by having spent time in this fucking basement? And the answer is, I don't think so. Do you think that's a... Now that we're talking about it and I'm down this road, do you think that's actually, like, part of the text? Like, saying that, like, the help available to vets just sucks that bad? That, like, even even the things that we think of as, like, oh, this this sounds like it would be a good supportive measure are just hopelessly, you know, in... in inadequate for for what vets actually need the kind of care they actually need that'd be cool but text here mm, (sighs) am i giving this show too much credit i don't know i mean like (laughs) i think to a degree like all these guys have already fallen through the cracks and are just trying to help each other out the best way they can uh which leads to really unhealthy things like hey buddy i notice you've dug a foxhole like entrenched fighting position in your backyard um you maybe shouldn't do that but whatever it's all good like he just kind of walks away yeah like 
like maybe there is an element of a lot of these sort of ad hoc solutions aren't like it's just not like it, they're not going to reach people who actually need some kind of intervention or some kind of like real therapy to adjust yeah. back to the real world. But I'm not sure it succeeds as text because like I don't think you can talk about the ways veterans are mistreated without digging into like the under resourcing of the VA. Yeah. Um, yes. And the show doesn't have like the like the VA doesn't come up in the show. Um, okay. Yeah. Really, and so I think that's kind of where it uh. That might be where it, where it fails, right? Like, well, like Hoyle, for instance, yeah. by all accounts, he appears to have a great prosthetic. Like, in terms of, like, his physical, like, as, as far as the government yeah. taking care of him, seems like the job is done. Hoyle's in a good place. Uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, got... He has a job. Yeah, yeah he's got yeah. a job. He's got uh, really good uh, solutions to uh, handle his wound. Um. And so, like, I think Hoyle kind of stands there as, like, yeah, the government, like, gives enough veterans, uh, like, enough help to stand on their feet. Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure. I, I think if this if the show's trying to be more of a critique, uh, you got to talk about the actual structures. And instead, yeah. what we're shown is a really well-meaning, really ineffective amateur <laughs> just sure. slowly creating a terror <laughs> cell in a Brooklyn basement. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yeah. God. Uh Hoyle and Healy should should hang out, I guess. Is uh, you know, they should they should hang out in a in a class that teaches you how to run effective group therapy. That's that's where they need to hang out. Yeah. That is the place for that. A group uh, therapy for bad group therapists. Exactly. <laughs> make your bad group therapy a little better that's, oh man there are so many netflix shows that have like extensive group therapy scenes i know like because and hey oh sorry go ahead. no but it totally happens in jessica jones yep and again it's kind of an unlicensed like uh her buddy just starts holding group therapy for people who've been attacked by Kilgrave. yeah and it may not be for the good of those people either um yeah, it didn't really help that much. Right, and Luke Cage, there's group therapy that is explicitly about identifying good <laughs> candidates for your super soldier uh, serum or whatever. Yeah. Like, the group therapist God. is literally like Dr. Evil, or at least Dr. Evil's henchman. <laughs> it's real good. So, yeah, uh, the, 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 Netflix, the Marvel Netflix shows have some issues. God damn. Issues that you just need good therapy for, you know? But not like groups. Bad therapy, man. <laughs> At least maybe that would help. Good lord. Ah, I think I need some some good group therapy after this. But I guess in that, in that case, now that we've pointed out all the bad group therapy in Marvel shows, shit, Legion too. Holy oh, shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's real bad group therapy. Only that, I guess, is in a hospital and it's bad. It's a bad hospital. Or is it? Did it really exist? Did that hospital ever the exist? Hospital yes, that hospital existed. existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's yeah. true. Shit. Legion wow. is tough because all of it feels like hallucination. Uh, right. Yeah. Like I like. Yeah, I was. I had to watch the show twice to figure out what was real and what was projection. Right. I love it. God, that's a great show. That show is amazing. Legion and Jessica Jones have have been my front runners for for Marvel anything. Yeah. Although Black Panther was pretty fucking great too. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. We'll see. But yeah. Jessica Jones might be next week. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. 
Uh, we'll see if I finish the Punisher this week. Uh, but anyway, I guess that's, that's my weekend plan. Uh, and f- with that, I guess it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we really do appreciate it when you tell your friends or tell your, I guess, buddies at group therapy or tell anybody that you think might enjoy the show about us. Uh, Word of mouth helps us out so, so much, and so does rating us on iTunes. So if you could take a moment and do that, we really would think the universe of that. We appreciate it. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends.